Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hi, everyone. It's good to be back. Yeah, I mean, needless to say, for anybody who's watching any news at all, there is a lot going on in our nation's capital the past few weeks. So I think we're going to just dispense with, with all pretense and just dive right in today. Yeah, we're not even getting into impeachment. Uh, That happened. Uh, I think everybody is pretty familiar with how that process works now, considering it's the second time in just over a year. Um, But we're going to start with uh, the the continuing legal fallout from the attempted coup at the Capitol uh, that at uh, at the Capitol building that happened last week. We said we'd keep you updated, and there are lots of things to update you on. So we'll just get right into it here. So first of all, a lot was made about the you know, the lack of arrests on site that Capitol Hill police, uh, you know, did that, that that they didn't arrest very many people on site. Uh, the federal government has been more than making up for that, uh, at least in the in the early term here. They've been cast. The, the DOJ has been casting a very large net far and wide. Uh, and lots of people are being arrested. Um, all of your favorites, the guy with the lectern. The guy with the zip ties, the guy with the Viking helmet and the furs. Um, they're, getting, they're getting the uh, they're getting the band back together. Yeah, there's there's dozens of arrests uh, that have been made uh, at this point. The DOJ also has a helpful landing page on its website to track all the active cases. If you're if you're interested in that, you should check that out. And the charges that these people are facing range from sort of unlawful gun possession on the Capitol grounds to you know, trespassing and unlawful entry, disorderly conduct, uh, the theft of, of government property, stuff like that. Um, that's those, those are the that makes up the bulk of the charges that are pending now. It could, however, get more serious. The U.S. attorney, uh, the acting U.S. attorney in D.C. is a guy named Michael Sherwin. He had a press conference this week that said that the uh, the DOJ has assembled what he called a strike force of prosecutors and investigators that are exploring, that are going to consider bringing cases tied to sedition and conspiracy, um, which in some cases can carry a penalty of up to 20 years in prison. Um, and obviously that is uh, a an area of the law that's not often explored um, in our in our system, and it'll be worth monitoring to see how that how that goes um, as if and when yeah. those cases pop up. I mean, what are what are we learning so far? Because I mean, you did sort of, you know, it's it's a little funny to say like the guy that had the Viking hat on, but right. who are these people? I mean, that's as we watch things unfold. I think a lot of people have sat around their houses watching TV, thinking. You know, who's dressing up in these costumes? Who's getting arrested for this? Like, what kind of person goes to the Capitol to do that? And we're yeah. starting to get some answers, right? Yeah, I mean, there, there, there's lots of things being written and said about the, you know, the very different demographics from which these people, you know, derive. And it would be foolish to try and sort of say they are all one thing or another. But a fascinating subplot is to see the the types of um, people who, who get caught up in this dragnet you've seen like people like like off-duty cops which is obviously very fraught given the events that have happened this summer state legislators internet celebrities um but for our purposes i did want to just uh spend a minute or two talking about uh one person who got arrested this week who is the uh, the son of a sitting brooklyn supreme court judge uh, that man is named Aaron Mostovsky. Uh, he is the 34-year-old son of Judge Stephen Shlomo Mostovsky. He was seen at the Capitol sporting fur pelts and a bulletproof vest and carrying a large sort of riot control police shield. 
He was actually interviewed by the New York Post inside the Capitol while it was going on. He identified himself as Aaron from Brooklyn, saying that the election was stolen from Trump and he was there to express his views. Uh, Yes, I am am robbing the bank. Uh, My name is (laughs) such and such. And I came here and I'm from Brooklyn. Um, He faces... uh, uh, Charges of government property theft and unlawful entry and a couple other things. The judge, uh, Shlomo Mostovsky, is a pretty prominent member of the Orthodox Jewish community in Brooklyn. He was elected to his seat, like I say, on the Kings County Supreme Court in November uh, with the backing of the Brooklyn Democratic Party. Um, the uh, his He has not yet commented on the arrest and charging of his son. I frankly... Don't expect him to, but certainly uh, uh, might be an interesting nugget for uh, for our listeners to uh, to know about. Let's move from uh, from a judge to some law firms because I know that we uh, there were some headlines this week about what firms were doing in response to everything that happened last week. Yeah, the legal establishment generally has 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 taken a pretty strong position against this stuff in a couple of different ways. The thing you're referring to most notably um, is a group of 19 law firms, including really big shops like Crowell and Mooring and DLA Piper last week um, issued a, uh, they signed a joint letter uh, calling on vice president Mike Pence to use the 25th amendment to strip Donald Trump of his powers saying that Trump quote uh, posed quote, a reckless and wanton threat to the constitution that he pledged to preserve, protect and defend, um, obviously very, uh, for, you know, and I'm even using kind of small C conservative, uh, law firms like that, who do like, who are not very, you know, likely to weigh in on social issues of the day or anything unless extenuating circumstances would pop up to literally to have big law firms like that call for the, the, the legal ousting of the sitting president is, uh, I, I don't think the significance of that is lost on anybody. Um, Couple other things, just that I want to take off. There was a uh, there was a Texas based insurance company called Goosehead Insurance. Uh, fired their in house their in house counsel, a guy named Paul Davis, who documented himself uh, participating in the demonstration on Instagram. Though he claimed he was peacefully protesting, did not, did not actually storm the Capitol. But that's another sort of piece of blowback. Uh, the other thing I wanted to talk about: a Delaware judge this week. Uh, actually booted uh, the uh, sort of fire conservative firebrand attorney Trump ally Lynn Wood off a defamation case that was brought by a Trump campaign advisor. Uh, the judge basically kicked Wood off the case and said that he exhibited, quote, a toxic stew of mendacity, prevarication and surprising incompetence. Wow, uh, judge. Tell us what you really think about this. Yeah. Jeez. To support that, he had referenced uh, Wood's involvement. Wood has brought a lot of these like very dubious lawsuits to overturn the election that really never, never really got off the ground in a meaningful way. And he also and Wood also recently tweeted the suggestion that Mike Pence should be arrested and executed for treason for failing to hand the election to Trump in his role as the president of the Senate. The judge, hmm. the, yeah, the judge who kicked this Delaware judge like specifically tied those tweets and other things that Wood was doing. He basically said that he used the word incited, that they incited the Capitol riot. So not mincing words there in terms of. Um, uh, yeah, I feel like this blowback. segment is just turning into a, a, a pretty big list of all the people that have seen some blowback based on their actions around what happened at the Capitol and, um, I think you also wanted to talk about Rudy Giuliani a bit because he's facing it too. 
Yeah, uh, not a great time to be in the Trump legal circle, um, as as you might imagine. What's going on here? Uh, there's a couple of different things going on with Rudy Giuliani, who now infamously addressed the rally that that precipitated this riot. He told the assembled Trump supporters that they should engage in trial by combat, um, and has like obviously because of comments like that. And then what happened? A lot of blame laid at his feet about getting. Everyone kind of whipped up to go do an insurrection uh, on Capitol Hill. Uh, uh, the New York State Bar Association has begun, you know, a formal inquiry and in whether to expel Giuliani from its ranks. Now, that is sort of a more ceremonial thing that 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 doesn't strip Giuliani of his of his law license or his ability to practice law in New York, but it would sort of oust him from the professional group, the Bar Association. But more sort of seriously, the head of the New York State Senate's Judiciary Committee has begun the proceeding. They, they, he has asked the New, New York State's appellate division to formally disbar Giuliani for participating in a scheme to, quote, essentially overthrow our government. So serious professional sanctions sort of looming in the air uh, for Giuliani there. Um, we should also note that uh, the New York Times ran a story today that Trump is seeking to block Giuliani from getting any legal fees for some of the work that he did. So uh, <laughs> things aren't going great for Giuliani back in the legal world. Yeah. The other, the, the last thing I wanted to hit on, and this we will probably follow, um, you know, f- far into the future, depending on how this goes. Obviously, I've run down the number of criminal complaints that are pending um, against the people who actually participated in the riot. Really interesting civil cases already brewing from this, uh, as, as people probably have heard. The uh, creators of the conservative-targeted uh, social network Parler uh, have sued Amazon for basically refusing to host that social network after you know it said that there were there was sort of content on Parler, which is where a lot of conservative thinkers have gone after they say they've been, you know, shadow banned or outright banned from Twitter and Facebook and things like that. They basically said that Parler was becoming this hub of incitement for the riot. Um, And Parler sued over that. They said that, you know, that that is sort of that is anti-competitive behavior. It infringes on First Amendment on, on First Amendment rights and things like that. There was a hearing in that today. I know our own Brian Koenig was dialed in. He'll have a story on that very soon, which people should check out um, if they're interested. I in think this issues. one's so interesting. I know we're going to have yeah. a lot to cover in the future because it is this um, bubbling mix of uh, what is actually covered by the First Amendment, which I think confuses a lot of people. And then also the power of big tech. So we just talked about that in the competition space, the antitrust space a lot. And I think when those collide, it's going to be, you know, potentially really informative about how courts are going to view this in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, In in addition to that pending case, the Texas Attorney General is also, hasn't opened a formal investigation. It doesn't appear yet, but he has sort of publicly demanded more information from Google, Apple, and Amazon, who have all taken some measure of restriction against Parler, um, also suggesting, you know, First Amendment and competition concerns. So it'll be interesting to see if there's any state-led effort on that. Um, but uh, yeah, there are there are no shortage of uh, strands to keep following from this uh, truly insane story that has, uh, are, you know, s- sending shockwaves through the uh, through the legal world. Well, for our our second story, we're going to stick to well, sort sort of a related thread. I mean, um, yeah, we're going to talk about um, you know, I think a lot of people believe that that you know, misinformation or disinformation or conspiracy theories on the internet, a lot of that stuff led to what we saw last week in the Capitol, mm-hmm. 
And there's no easy answers for any of this. I mean, Amber hit on it before about the difficulty, all the different sort of strands of the law that factor in when you do try to start policing this stuff. But um, there is still one sort of, you know, (laughs) baseline remedy that exists in these circumstances, which is defamation law. Yeah. Um, And in a lawsuit that we saw filed last week on Friday, um, uh, Dominion Voting Systems chose that route to go after uh, Sidney Powell, an attorney who many people probably saw, heard from in the weeks after the presidential election in November, um, when she was trumpeting fairly wacky accusations that the um, uh, Dominion, which is an election software company, uh, was part of this vast conspiracy involving all sorts of things to rig the 2021 election um so i mean the case is interesting in its own right but i I think it's also interesting because it could be the first of several of these cases that we see well i'm glad you brought this one bill because you're the perfect person to walk us through what's in this case but also how libel laws really work i mean this is one of your areas that you cover a lot and i think people get confused so just give us the details here what what exactly is dominion hotshot media reporter bill donahue (laughs) you have the floor well, yeah, I mean, we're going to have to do a, uh, a whirlwind tour of this thing because it was a 124-page uh, federal complaint wow. that, that Dominion filed, um, basically Yikes. making these these extremely detailed accusations, going through all the different appearances that Sidney Powell made, claiming that she had repeatedly made defamatory statements about the company, false, harmful statements about the company. They said that her, quote, wild accusations had, quote, caused unprecedented harm to the company. So the the, um, the the basic outline here in the lawsuit is that um, these defamatory statements fall into three different buckets. One is that um, she said that Dominion rigged the election uh, by manipulating votes, basically the, 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 the big overarching, you know, uh, conspiracy theory here yeah um two that the company uh, that she claimed that the company was created in in venezuela um to help the the now deceased uh, former head of that country hugo chavez uh rig elections there and and the third uh you know allegedly defamatory claim here was that um uh, dominion had then bribed officials in georgia to get a contract to be the um the you know to to be the software provider here um Dominion says that each of those uh, statements, which were made over and over and over again, um, is demonstrably false and and um, harmful to the company uh, in the kind of way that can form a basis for for defamation liability. Here's the incredible quote that almost seems I read it and then reread it and then reread it and couldn't believe that I was reading it in a federal court document. Quote. Far from being created in Venezuela to rig elections for a now deceased Venezuelan dictator, Dominion was founded in Toronto for the purpose of creating a fully auditable paper-based vote system that could empower people with disabilities to vote independently on verifiable paper ballots. Um, the, the company, you know, I think what what people you know know here is that this company had that their employees have received death threats. They have um, there's been this huge harm to the company's reputation as a result of these statements, which mm-hmm. they say in this lawsuit were just fully false. And also, now, I mean, reputation is really important to an election service provider. I mean, that's a big part of how they maintain clients and and get you know additional business is to prove that they're reliable. 
For sure. I mean, it's it's you know, it's not like a product where you can buy it and then say, oh, no, that stuff was a lie. It's fine. It's a product where that sort of spawns these crazy conspiracy theories. So, you know, when you start putting this stuff out there, I think it's particularly harmful if it's false. Now, I I mean, mixing up Toronto and Venezuela is could be an innocent mistake. I mean, let's I mean, let's be honest. Uh, You know, you never really know. Uh, No, I'm I'm teasing, of course. Um, There are. There are a lot of different sort of ways to approach defamation cases like this. I mean, do do you have a sense of like how strong the case is or how it might proceed if it if it if it gains traction in the court? Yeah, I mean, just from my own sense and from reading some of the you know the expert analysis that's out that's out there, it seems like Dominion has a pretty strong case here. Um, there's a few interesting wrinkles, though. I mean, one question is whether Dominion will be treated you know in this context as a public figure, um, right? Which is a legal status that makes it much harder to sue for defamation. It probably is, from what I understand, when a business is the plaintiff, that and especially a prominent business like this, um, that, that's often the case. So they will need to make the claim, they will need to prove not just that, that she made these statements, but that she made them knowing they were false or with a reckless disregard for the truth. That's the, the actual malice standard that a mm-hmm. lot of people mm-hmm. have probably heard of. Um, there's also the old, you know, the, the sort of standby defense to a, to a defamation lawsuit is that these were these were just claims of her opinion. Um, they they were not um, they were not you know provable statements of fact, which is what you need to have uh, liability for for defamation. So, um, but but many of the statements that are listed in the complaint seem very factual. The way that she was doing these media hits and um, you know the the accusation here is that they they are factual and that um, Dominion can can directly disprove each of them with with pretty hard evidence. There's also yeah, I mean I thought, even. Well, even before we move on from that, it just seems really clear, like even Alex joking around a few seconds ago saying, you know, it's easy to mix up Toronto and Venezuela. Like, that's just a fact. Like, it, right. where they were Your Honor, I was doing irony. Fact. I was doing irony. Uh, and that is uh, that is airtight as far as I know. No, it's, it, it, there's obviously lots of interesting stuff at play. Yeah. yeah I mean, the, and but the one last thing I was going to mention was the, the sort of interesting interplay with um, judicial proceedings. There's there's. To, to some extent, statements made during uh, litigation, during oh, yeah. you know, in in court, can be shielded from libel liability, to, you know, to a certain extent. But again, Dominion seems, you know, to have to have sort of obviously thought about this and and seemed to be heading it off in their complaint. They expressly said at one point that they are not suing over anything that was in the lawsuits, just the you know the stuff that 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 came out in the public, you know, the the media blitz, the social media, all that other stuff. It's it's really a boom time for people going on TV and saying uh, crazy stuff that that borders on outright falsehoods. So, I mean, do we have do we have a sense that there could be more of these? Yeah, I think that's what the interesting upshot is here that there, you know, that we're, we probably will see more of these cases. I mean, there's another smaller company that's called Smartmatic that has been sort of in this same, you know, conspiracy theory cinematic universe that has popped up <laughs> since the election that um, uh, th- that company's founder has retained a, a very well-known defamation attorney, the guy who won the pink slime case back uh, a couple oh, years yeah. ago against ABC sure. over some of their reporting. Um, in December, he sent cease and desists uh, to Fox News, to Newsmax, to OAN, um, three uh, conservative news networks that have spent months airing these the, the, the claims that have been made by people like Powell. Um, 
Dominion has also said that they are considering other lawsuits. I think that they've been a little cagey about it, but um, but they've said that they are considering more legal action in addition to this case against others who have uh, quote amplified uh, the kind of accusations that are that are in the lawsuit. Um, so you know. That last part that I mentioned, bringing these against media outlets, I think would be the really interesting and probably a little bit dangerous escalation of this situation where, you know, um, the I mean, we should say the media outlets would have a very different defense than than what Powell would be making. Yeah, that they they had people on as guests. They didn't say it themselves. They didn't know Mm. it was false, blah, blah, blah. Um, But, you know, I mean, libel cases against media outlets, particularly by powerful companies they can be used to squash legitimate criticism i think most i think many people would look at this situation and say well this is what defamation was designed to do but um when you when you get into that realm where you know we're policing this misinformation with this kind of litigation liability um and you know that same sort of uh you know mechanism can be used against people who perhaps weren't uh, you know, going as far or, or you know, weren't doing quite the egregious stuff that, that this lawsuit alleges, you can get into really tricky problems that, that, you know, are why this kind of thing is so difficult to deal with. spread of COVID-19 has forced many businesses to shut down and let go of workers. But that may also expose employers to lawsuits under a federal law requiring advance notice before a mass layoff. A pending suit against Enterprise Rent-A-Car is testing how this law applies to pandemic-related cuts. Here to talk about it with us is senior employment reporter Ann Cullen. Ann, welcome to the show. Hi there. Glad to be here. Ann, I'm really glad we have you here because I think this federal law that we're talking about a lot of people might not have heard of it. It's called the Warren Act. Can you tell us a little bit more about that statute? Yeah, you bet. So it's a 1980s law, and it's it's short for the Worker Adjustment and Retraining Notification Act, the Warren Act. Um, and it's essentially a federal worker protection law that says companies that have 100 or more full-time employees on their payroll can't just suddenly fire a bunch of people uh, without giving them two months' notice. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think, you know, anyone who follows the law knows some of the bigger, you know, employment statutes, but but the Warren Act is something that, you know, I, I know very little bit about. And, and, I, and I think probably most workers are thankful they don't know anything about it because it implicates mass layoffs. But w- w- walk us through, I mean, what we're talking about here with, with this case in terms of enterprise, we're talking about COVID, just orient us on the facts of this case. Yeah, so um, a worker, a former enterprise worker that was fired in the spring uh, in April 2020, she brought a proposed class action against Enterprise Holdings, which is the parent company of Enterprise Rent-A-Car, National Car Rental, Alamo Rent-A-Car, and a couple other similar firms, basically saying that it violated the Warren Act when it fired her and a bunch of other workers uh, in the spring, you know, as the coronavirus pandemic was sort of rocking the travel industry, um, because she, like many others, didn't get any notice ahead of their layoff. Yeah, I mean, I think this is really interesting how this these sort of two things butt together, this law that is meant to protect workers, but 
pandemics are unusual, and you can see how employers would be facing some real challenges, particularly in the beginning of the pandemic when, you know, it seemed like the economy and, and just business was going crazy in a lot of industries just disappearing overnight. So what what happened with the suit? I mean, we've got it's still in progress, but we've had a few developments. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, one important thing about the WARN Act that we're going to get into in a little bit is that it does have carve outs for what you're mentioning, just sort of extreme dramatic circumstances, which obviously the pandemic could qualify for. Um, and so last week, um, the case in Florida federal court and Judge Dalton there basically said um, Enterprise had claimed that two of these exemptions should shut down the case early. Just, it should be able to be dismissed. And Judge Dalton said, no, not quite. It needs to go through fact finding discovery first. And so that's kind of a, a big deal because um, not only has this case become sort of a bellwether in this arena, because there's not a lot of cases going on right now that are working on this interplay between the WARN Act and COVID-19, but also his, if his ruling is to be followed by other courts, which it might be because he's kind of breaking new ground here, it basically says none of these cases can be tossed out of the dismissal stage. They're going to have to go to summary judgment, which is, you know, it's, it's a long time and it's, it's, it means that employers are going to have to go through discovery and all sorts of things that, that go along with that. So it's bad news for employers generally what his ruling was. Yeah, let's talk about those exemptions. What did the company say? What did Enterprise say should get this suit tossed right off the bat? Yeah, so there's three exemptions in the federal statute, but, but two are in play here. One is for natural disasters. So think like a flood leveling your factory, right? Um, and in those situations, uh, a company doesn't have to give any notice to the workers. You just, that same day, they're fired. That's that. Yeah, um, I mean, the policy implication is pretty clear there. There's no factory to go back to. So, right. you know, giving two months seems like a, too much of a burden on a company. Right. Yeah. And even giving less than that would be would be hard um, because there's some exemptions and there's another one in the law that does say you you can give less than that in other crazy situations. Like, right. And so this is the one that we think will apply here. It's called the unforeseeable business circumstance defense. And basically, it's more of a catch all that says, you know, if, if a company is just absolutely rocked by something it could not have foreseen. Um, it doesn't have to give two months notice. It can just give as much notice as is practicable, um, which is just basically like saying as much notice as it could under what circumstances it might have been facing. And so bringing it back to this case, Judge Dalton ruled last week that he knocked the, the natural disaster defense off the table. He said it doesn't really apply here. Uh, he said that unforeseeable business circumstance defense could be applicable to the case. But he decided that, you know, he's going to need more facts to see if it is and then more facts to see if Enterprise did truly give as much uh, notices was possible under its circumstances. It's so interesting. I mean, it, it it reminds me a little bit. We've talked a lot on this show about um, all the insurance cases that have cropped up after COVID. And it's so interesting to see these different, you know, these existing systems, like you just explained, the, the natural disaster exemption and all that. And then you take this new sort of overwhelmingly large new thing and you try to decide whether or not it's going to fit into these, you know, these pre-existing boxes. I think it's so interesting for anyone who follows the law to sort of look at this new, you know, thing that we're all dealing with and how these different existing systems are dealing with it. But um, uh, so, so you know, what does this mean going forward? I, it, it goes without saying that COVID is, you know, has caused a lot of businesses to shed a lot of jobs. Um, what does it mean if, if these exemptions don't apply or at least can't be applied early on in a case the way that Enterprise wanted to here? Well, yeah, sort of touching on what you mentioned earlier, it is interesting because just WARN Act in general is, is applied on a case-by-case basis, just by nature of the statute. It's always going to be based on sort of the circumstances of an employer. Um, but, but experts I spoke to on this issue last week mentioned that um, this will be a really unusual situation in which employers have all been affected by the same thing. 
And so it'll be kind of new ground in, in terms, especially of the Warren Act, where you might actually see some more consistent law in the Warren Act cases, based on the fact that there'll be a lot of similar situations arising. So anyway, that, that is really fascinating. I think that's why people are watching it. Um, so the judge is ruling last week uh, by saying that that if the unforeseeable business exemption does apply, um, the case still has to go to summary judgment. Uh, like we were talking about kind of a, a beat ago, it means that these cases are going to be just more long, going to be longer cases. There will be protracted litigation. Um, it also means that employers are going to have to go through discovery and fact-finding, which they don't love. And uh, also, you know, as part of this, if, if a court is examining whether or not a company gave as much notice as, as they could, um, they're going to want to see financial reports. And companies also don't love handing those over. Businesses really hate having to fork over any more financial records than, um, you know, than the bare minimum. And it seems like what you said there um, is a really unique situation, even for the Warren Act, where we might have direct competitive, uh, you know, comparisons of like Hertz laid off people, what gave them X amount of notice, Enterprise laid off people and gave them a different amount of notice. And it's all stemming from one issue. So that's going to be really fascinating to see if we get in the same industry similar suits coming up and, and comparing what different companies did. Yeah, I think which is why this order last week was was so interesting and a lot of people are watching it because it will be one of the first sort of takes from the federal bench on this interaction. And it, it's likely that it'll be followed, especially when a judge is breaking new ground in this way. Well, what and, do you think that some of these employers will do? Because I, I think uh, most legal watchers who follow anything remotely like this, when they hear about things like protracted litigation, heavy discovery demands. Their Dragged mind, into discovery. Yeah, I mean, their mind immediately goes to like, well, the companies are just going to do a bunch of settlements, right? They're not going to want to do this. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I, I think, you know, when you're looking at a longer lawsuit where you have to go through discovery and fact finding, and you're also looking through, looking at defenses that might be difficult to prove to a court and a potentially summary judgment stage or trial. Yeah, I think the bargaining table is going to look a lot more attractive to a lot of businesses than, than trying their hand at court. And I think that's definitely right. I wish these cases would all go to trial so we could write about them and learn a bunch about um, what <laughs> what's the, the courts would say about these situations. But uh, it'll be interesting to see how many more of these crop up and, and how they turn out. Thanks for bringing it to us. Yeah, you bet. Thanks, Anne. It sure has been a busy show this week. I think um, that kind of wraps up everything we wanted to cover, and it was a lot. Yeah, I'm the uh, I'm the SpongeBob meme because uh, I'm a head out right now. <laughs> well, great. Thanks for being with me today, Alex. <laughs> thank you. And thank you, Bill. See you next week, guys. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guest this week, Ann Cullen, and our contributing reporters, Jack Queen, Christopher Cole, Marco Poggio, Rose Krebs, Andrew Craigie, and Michelle Gorman. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. And if you like Pro Se, definitely leave us a five-star review and a written review on your favorite podcast platform. That helps other people find our show. If you want to read more about the many, many things we covered today, check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you again next week.